1: This episode of The Protocol is sponsored by the Stellar Community Fund.
2: Dive deep into the blockchain realm with The Protocol podcast, with Coindesk founding editor of The Protocol newsletter, Brad Kown, and tech journalists, Sam Kessler and Margot Nykirk. They unravel the intricate technologies powering cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum, one block at a time. Just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hello and welcome to the Protocol Podcast. I'm Brad Cowan here with my co-hosts, tech reporters Margot Nykirk and Sam Kessler. We're so excited about today's episode. We're going to dive right into the latest news and developments in technology behind crypto and blockchains. First, please do not forget to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The Protocol, on Coindesk.com. It comes out on Wednesdays, and it's really good. So we're going to talk about some of that today, and let's get right into it. And our first news story we're going to discuss, Margo, this was such a fun story you did. Uh, The headline is, Zuzulu Vitalik Buterin-Led Retreat in Montenegro inspires grants for zoo villages it's like a lot of things that people probably have no idea <laughs> what any of that is but margo i think you wrote about zoosaloo you were probably the first person to do a really cool feature story on Zuzulu. start with telling people what that is and then transition into what this latest story is
1: yeah so zoosaloo was a conference that was held back. It was a two-month-long, I, was, I should call it an event, not really a conference, that was held back from March to May in Montenegro. And it wasn't necessarily crypto-focused, but there was a lot of presence from figures in the crypto blockchain industry, including Vitalik Buterin, the co-founder of Ethereum, was one of the folks that started this event. And it was an invite-only exclusive gathering for 200 people. It was kind of a little bit obscure in terms of finding out who these 200 people were, like, why were they invited? What was the process behind it? Also, like, there wasn't a whole lot of press about it at the time, except for, like, selfies that were being taken on Twitter with Vitalik. Because these, you know, these people that were there for two months, like, were able to live together, play together, go to parties together, to go cold plunging together. Because this was on, like, a Mediterranean town. But the idea was that, like, this event was really about longevity and about, like, health and the future. And so that's how sort of crypto came in into that technology. I mean, I wasn't there. I was just fascinated by what was, like, being circulated on social media. But apparently they had, like, glucose monitoring. They had, like, a bunch of, I don't know, yoga and health-oriented...
2: Well, you know, it plays off of like Balaji's the network state, right? It it was wasn't that kind of part of the ideas, these like sort of separate communities. Right. That, well,
1: that's like, like the second part of this. It's like okay. the gathering was about a bunch of different topics about like the future. And part of that are these is that like these network states. That's what happened here is that like there was this city that was built out of thin air on like this town called listica bay like zuzulu doesn't actually mean anything i don't know i don't know entirely the history why that name came to be that name but it's like made up
2: i think um, it's like vitalik playing around with jad gpt or something like that i you have know? no idea
1: i don't want to i don't well, want to like i don't want to <laughs> say that's the truth
0: but, done it before though but, right they did it last year i think you wrote so, about this
1: so, so zuzulu was back in may and so now where this sort of comes in is that they're looking to spin it off and to create a bunch of different other inspired cities, and so they've like okay. opened this grant program to create other pop-up cities that deal with these similar issues, or, or deal with like you know just inspired by Zuzulu. Maybe it could be a different name, could be any you know somewhere else in this world. But it's also like not entirely clear who's spearheading this and like who, like who's involved in it. Um, But there is this blog post that was on Gitcoin where there's about 250 ETH that's being allocated to projects that are tech-driven that will help grow these pop-up cities uh, inspired by Zuzulu and Zoo Villages. And so it's running now. I think it's, like, running for another month, this program. And we'll just have to, like, see who these recipients will be and what ideas they come up with. Fortunately, I wasn't really able to talk to some of the founders of susaloo i would love to talk to them but they notoriously don't really like press you know this is them like i'm reaching out to you please talk to me about this because i would love to i just think it's so interesting and cool for this you
2: you and i were trading messages yesterday margo about this vitalia um, that's going on now in honduras that appears to be kind of the same people and
1: yeah uh, i mean it's that's also kind of that that just started it's not entirely crypto focused they did like it did say online that it is inspired by Zuzulu it's taking place in Honduras Vitalia I don't know if it's an iteration on the word Vita as we were discuss- discussing like which has to do with life or, or in or Vitalik which, <laughs> yes exactly or which has to do with no you know, the godfather of Ethereum but there seems to be it's next there, it's like a two-month program as well so it sounds like it's like a copy paste kind of thing but you know, I was I was texting with a bunch of my sources last night, like, hey, do you know anyone that's going to Vitalia? Because I'd love to talk to someone. And they hadn't heard of it. I think it's fairly, it's fairly, like, it doesn't really sound like any of the folks that did go to Zuzulu are right now at Vitalia. But... January thirty first to February fifth is the crypto week.
2: Adam. And I think Vitalik, we saw on that Vitalik is supposed to go to Vitalia, right? I mean, didn't I don't know, we know he's going, but he's I definitely he
1: speaking at one of the things. Okay, and it I feels, think they're they're live yeah. streaming some stuff, so I don't it, know if he's presently there.
0: Got it. It, it yeah. feels kind of like a Burning Man slash yes. like Andrew Huberman. I meets mean, it's like Bohemian Grove. Remember that like yeah. thing where yeah. I think like Nixon would go and all these other power players for, you know, who knows what? Is anybody yeah. allowed to just like apply to this or is it kind of inv- I imagine you'd just show up. So is it like it has gotta be like invitation only, right? Like or or can you just go? Like I mean how does that work?
1: Yeah, I mean I would I would love to just go. But I don't know <laughs> if like I don't think that the information is entirely visible. Like you can't like log on to vitalia.com i don't even know that's the website but it's not like it's like east denver where you can see what the address of the conference is so all i know is that's taking place in honduras it is invite only
2: it looks like a pretty good setup like it's a it looks like a seaside resort yeah yeah i mean uh, it's, yeah.
1: i think part of the appeal of this is that because they want to keep this exclusive and the mystery behind that is by keeping it exclusive so they're opening up to press then that sort of um alleviates that barrier. But also, you know, like Burning Man is exactly what it seems like outwards. And I, I will say I was reading a piece again last night about Zuzulu. There was someone from Consensus who went there and spent two months and she was she was talking about her reflections, how it was totally misportrayed in the media as a Burning Man and summer camp. But it was really like an inspirational kind of event. Which does give Burning Man from like the outside looking in. So, like I said, if someone has any connection to Vitalia, like would love to have my mind changed if it's not Burning Man. But
0: that's yeah, what it I does mean, look like. there's plenty <laughs> of things like this, right? So there's also that, like, I mean, I mean, it's different because I don't think there's really like a physical component, like a city, but Praxis Society, which is you can read like yeah. exposés about it. I think most recently in the New York Times, where you know they raised a bunch of money from like known investor i feel like peter Thiel was somehow connected to this as well but like you know, it, it looks like they might have blown that money on like parties and stuff i have no idea how much they got left over but there's a lot of these sort of like exclusive groups that are sort of tangentially related to crypto that are trying to build the ideal kind of utopian city they also you know have nice accommodations like this or fun parties in the case of praxis society. I don't know. you often see these sort of like exclusive clubs come up, and yeah i, I don't know what the there there is, but i would have to be there to to find out. They don't let me in where well, <laughs> um, I haven't been invited
2: well well, if you can get the invite sam uh we'll we'll run it up the flagpole, see if coindesk will pay for you to go down to Honduras uh, <laughs> with Margo please. But, uh, you know, just it's sort of we should probably move on to the next topic. But, you know, I mean, it's interesting. Just you think about, you know, Susalu, you're two months with people. You must make pretty solid connections with them, you know, and that is, you know, as we know from just conventional business world, it helps to have those solid connections and your career and you know, just kind of putting juxtaposing that with sort of some of the ideals of decentralization and blockchain, and it's the community in charge. And then, you know, meanwhile, there's, you know, certain groups of people who are really kind of behind a lot of it and so close to each other. But anyway, I don't know, I think that's kind of interesting. But all right, speaking of people being close to each other i don't know if that's a real segue at all but anyway i just did it so i might as well keep going here but the next story was a story that i wrote um bitcoin based digital art image genesis cat sells for two hundred fifty-four thousand dollars in sotheby's auction so what is this this is essentially an nft story we're talking about nfts here this is nfts on bitcoin and of course remember we remember a few years ago when there was just absolute NFT mania and there was the the people and you know there all this digital art going for crazy money and obviously you know the crypto punks the bored apes and just going for mind-boggling sums of money and then they started selling these things at some of these traditional auction houses like the Sotheby's and Christie's and I mean, the New York Times was writing about it. And then the big development last year was the release of the Ordinals Protocol, uh, Casey Rodemer, who was, you know, on our most influential list. And I was just listening to her in their Hell Money podcast last night. It's actually really good. You know, just talking about the, the one year anniversary of Ordinals. And I mean, the big idea is it really set the Bitcoin world on fire, but in a like a a buzzy, you know, injected energy into the Bitcoin ecosystem like it hasn't seen for a long time. Suddenly there were all these, you know, people minting these NFTs and then subsequently there was the protocol for minting tokens, which of course Bitcoiners, a lot of the maxis do not like at all. But anyway, you know, I think this story that I wrote here, there's a a company that, that started last year called Taproot Wizards. They raised $7.5 million, which is an incredible sum of money, you know, from what I understand, for a Bitcoin startup. And they're basically, you know, they made a collection. Their first collection was Taproot Wizards. And now they're coming out with this. They've come out with a new collection called uh, the Quantum Cats. And this was the first one, the Genesis Cat. It's, you know, and they sold it on at uh, Sotheby's. It, it, it got $254,000. I don't know. That's kind of the essence of the story. It's just about, you know, kind of NFT mania coming to Bitcoin. Y'all you, you have any questions or thoughts about this?
0: I mean, like when I see a story like this, I think uh, I have some skepticism around who is actually the buyer. So like you mentioned, like there's obviously, you know, this big hype cycle that we're seeing now around ordinals, around NFTs on the Bitcoin blockchain. And we saw back when this happened on Ethereum and other ecosystems that folks tend to have like a vested interest in paying a lot of money for these assets or whatever you want to these these NFTs because that pays dividends by promoting the broader space, by promoting the broader collection, um, what have you. It's how like, you know, normal art works too, like the, the, you know, private art sales world where, you know, a few people own all the Warhols and they'll bid up any Warhol that goes on sale because they don't want it to drop below a certain price. I wouldn't be surprised knowing nothing about who the buyer is here, just like hearing, you know, you explain the story. If this is just somebody who, again, has a, an interest or an organization that has an interest in driving hype towards this world, rather than, you know, some sort of organic Sotheby's bidder who's decided, hey, this digital art on Bitcoin looks cool, and I think it's worth paying $250,000 for it. And the reason why I think that, especially now, compared to Ethereum times is because this world is so much smaller than it was when Ethereum and Solana and all these other NFT ecosystems were popping up that like, it, it's hard to imagine that there's that much organic interest flooding into this space. But again, I don't know, I, I try to be, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here for the you know sake of discussion. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. What, what do you think?
1: <laughs> From the Ethereum perspective, I think, like, you know, when you can, or at least in, in blockchains, you can so easily fall down like a rabbit hole, right? And so for, as someone who's, like, peeping in, like, doesn't really keep as much, you know, track at, with Bitcoin, but peeping in sort of from the outside, like, that's what it seems like is really what the big innovation, like, where the innovation is happening on Bitcoin today. And I'm curious, Brad, like, as you follow this, is is this truly where the innovation is happening on Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin's always been regarded as, like, Digital gold, don't touch it. It's only for for transactions and and for money. Like, where is is this really where building on Bitcoin is heading to, or or what else is you know part of this ecosystem? Yeah, this is
0: just kind of like a sideshow um, for people to to gamble. <laughs> I think is well, the question.
2: You know, there's a lot happening on Bitcoin. All of a sudden, there was, a, a, in fact, there was just a report out. Jamie, Crow, our colleague Jamie Crowley, wrote about it about all the uh, Bitcoin layer two development of course, there's there's the Lightning Network, you know, and, and so they call them the big four of stacks is one that, that has a little more programmability. And there's some layer twos that are kind of already out there on Bitcoin, but there's like a whole world that's starting to explode and people trying to figure out how to build EVM, Ethereum compatible um, blockchains that settle, you know, using the Bitcoin security. You know, one of the things that they say about ordinals, the difference between ordinals and, I mean, we, we're we getting kind of deep, maybe too deep here, but, you know, ordinals, like, one thing about it is that it's all on the chain, right? Whereas the NFTs, often it's just kind of like a marker and then it points to some data that's stored on Filecoin or something, you know, but the debate has yet to be, I think, fully settled, you know, in terms of what is Bitcoin going to be. The thing that's winning is the anti-censorship, I guess. It's like, you know, it's like no no single person's going to decide what is going to go on there, you know. But I don't know. Does that answer your question, Sam?
0: Yeah, I think it does. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's there's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, the question of whether these ordinals are, you know, the thing or one among many sounds like it, it probably is the latter, um, but there's a lot more going on broadly in, in the Bitcoin world than there was when I started reporting on crypto, when any of us did. So it has been interesting to see it heat up, especially during like this broader bear market. It, you know, We've just been hearing a lot more about this auxiliary sort of world of Bitcoin development that just didn't I exist mean, prior to this.
2: One, I mean, ordinals, they were talking about this on the Hell, Hell Money. They're coming out in just a couple of months with something called runes which is like going to be a, uh, like a, a fungible token protocol. They came out with the BRC20s uh, last year, but this one is going to be uh, specifically on like an outgrowth of the Ordinals protocol. But all right, we're going to go to a break now. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the outage on Ethereum's Nethermind client, uh, which I've been co- referring to in the newsletter as uh Ethereum's diversity problem, it's not what it sounds like, but it's a very technical thing, but it's actually super interesting. Okay, we'll talk about it when we come back.
1: Have a blockchain project idea and need funding to make it happen? Look no further. The Stellar Community Fund is here to help bring your project to life on the Stellar Network. This year alone, over $10 million in XLM awards have been allocated across more than 100 innovative projects. And your idea could be next. Approved project submissions can receive up to $100,000 in XLM per project. So head over to communityfund.stellar.org to get started.
0: Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren.
2: I want to push back slightly on the idea that cash the value of it, I mean, that's what FX markets are about, right, is like arbitraging differences in cash value. And there's a whole gigantic market around currency exchanges. And so I think there that we do see trading that happens in cash. But to your point, you know, the use of cash as a means of payment, et cetera, is pretty robust and sticky as a concept. And I think the joke is always, you know, if cash didn't exist, no one would invent it. But hey, it, it does exist. And so that's the world that we're in. Look, there is a crypto angle in this. Our job is not to sit here as either geopolitical or conflict resolution commentators, but it matters to everybody, every human being. Given how horrific this story is, the fact that there was an order to shut down crypto accounts used by Hamas and that Binance came in to cooperate with that, of course, is yet another negative story around crypto. Take the frame from wherever you want to take it, but by remaining silent about bad actors in our industry, about criminal behavior, about terrorists, about whatever it is, and just focusing on the topic of our show,
1: but I mean this more generally: by remaining silent, we are complicit.
0: You heard what she had
2: to say. Go out there, call spades, spades. Stand up for what is right. Like, just it's time to to stop shirking the responsibilities we have, and yeah. it's just time to just stand up for what's right.
0: Listen to Money Reimagined every Wednesday on the CoinDesk Podcast Network. You can subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
2: And we're back. We're going to talk about Ethereum's a bug that knocked out the uh, Nethermind Client software on Ethereum. Sam, you you dug into this story. Why don't you just give us a brief uh, s- summary of what what the story was?
0: Yeah, Ethereum, like other blockchains, is operated by a big network of contributors called validators. In this case, and in order to interact with the blockchain, they use these softwares called clients. Client softwares. There's you know execution client softwares, consensus client softwares. They got to use them to run the chain, and essentially. One of the popular softwares that those developers use, but not the biggest, by far not the biggest, called NetherMind, fell offline essentially uh, this weekend as the result of a bug in its programming. And that basically knocked, uh, it's hard to get an exact number. Like I've seen 8%, I've seen 15%, but like around 10-ish percent, um, we say 8% in our story, of validators off the Ethereum network. That didn't really have any consequences for Ethereum itself. The bug was also patched really quick, which meant that any material losses to the validators, like slashing or there's other kinds of losses that you get if you go offline as a validator, just you know as a result of how the programming works, those were, were limited. But it's really kicked off this wider discussion, like you were saying, Brad, about diversity, client diversity specifically. So if this same sort of a bug were to afflict the most popular Ethereum execution software, client software, Which is called Geth, uh, which is used by 85% ish of the network's validators, that would have way more serious ramifications for the ecosystem. So, you all over Crypto X have been seeing calls for greater client diversity. Margo, I know you're the Ethereum reporter. Maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the discourse that you've been seeing online this week.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think this is a really interesting story because this has been a conversation that's been around since like the merge, but with everything, you know, there's just so much for the developers to tackle that, that like, always, there's always something that takes a backseat. And then depending, you know, something happens, usually a bug or an exploit or something, and then the conversation reignites. So it was really fascinating to see how quickly this, like, spun up again, and how some of these, like, tw- I would say, like, Twitter advocates or or just, like, people who are passionate about this issue were very, like, vocal in their concerns. You know, it was also interesting to see that, there were some users who, like I saw a tweet, someone said, you know, I did my part, like I switched over to NetherMind. And so I think like this is a good thing overall for the ecosystem, because as you, as you said, like this happened on Gath, this could like have some very serious consequences. And so sometimes you need these kind of reminders. I also saw like there was an update, like I have to check the numbers again, but I think since this incident, Gath uh, has lost 5% of its share. That being said, it's still like around the 75, 80% mark right now. So that's still quite concerning in terms of its like market power, but I think was waiting to happen maybe in some essence. And so it's like a good thing, I think, overall for the health of the ecosystem.
2: We've talked last week about some of the economics of these things. Like, you know, I mean, it's all good and well for the Ethereum and the people who really care about the network to say, hey, this should happen. As an individual, why would you switch to Nethermind yeah. from Geth? Like, what's the incentive there versus just like, you know, I, I, I'm doing the right thing. How do they get people to do that?
0: Like Margo said, there's kind of been this organic groundswell of support trying to push people. It's almost like a moralizing type of thing. Like, you know, keep the network healthy by moving over to Nethermind or Bessu, one of the other minority clients or some of the others, which, you know, seems kind of counterintuitive, right? Because those, so Bessu also had a bug earlier in January, and you know some of this discord comes on the heels of that as well, seems counterintuitive that another bug would push people to call for more validators to use these softwares that have had bugs. So how do you incentivize people? Why do you incentivize people? Well, one thing that you've seen a lot of folks talking about on X is that by using a majority client as a validator, and so remember validators stake 32 ETH or more for the opportunity to validate, help process blocks in the network you are theoretically risking more of your ETH in the event of a bug. Now, there's a lot of weird math and game theory and like other incentive schemes on Ethereum that kind of have to be teased out in order to explain why that would occur. But if there ever were um, a bug on Geth, you would, as a result of this stuff, theoretically be subject to greater losses. A lot of people are kind of being really extreme about it. There could be 100% losses of your staked ETH as a result of a bug in that system. And I won't get into all the nuances there. You can look them up. There's like a lot of competing arguments and, and math on how much you would lose. Then just, because yeah. it's kind of
2: like a bonding, right? Like you validate, you're expected to validate, right? And then they penalize you if you're down. Yeah.
0: At a, yeah. At a high level. Yeah. That's yeah. basically it. Like if you're dishonest or if you fall offline, it would depend on the nature of the bug to determine the penalties. But yeah, you get penalized. But again, these other things had bugs. So Why should people move to them? Well, ultimately, in the grand scheme, they have been improving. And if you are using a minority client, you don't stand to suffer that much if that minority client falls offline or something else. And one of the sources that I talked to actually, you know, Dan Huang, he's a validator specialist, and he had an interesting take on this where he saw it like as a total silver lining and a proof case that for him, people in his view, validators don't actually do their research into other clients he thinks that it's basically like a sort of bandwagon thing that people are using geth geth is developed in large part by the ethereum foundation and a team there but the ethereum foundation also funded development of nethermind it's not like these are competing softwares with one another and dan basically says like hey a lot of people just like aren't doing their research into how these um how these other clients work and they're doing the whole i like basically if everybody's using a, a a certain software Nobody's going to penalize them. If you're like the intern deciding on what validator software you're going to use at some random validator upstart, no one's going to penalize you, even if Geth falls offline, because it's the thing that everybody else was using. So a lot of this is just like, you know, a consequence of, you know, people just being lazy in his view.
1: These are big players in blockchain. And so, like Sam said, like, it's just in this case, it's a matter of just following what everyone else is doing, but these minor clients, like have like reputable teams, I would say. So it's just a weight kind of thing. I
0: mean, you, you, you kind of raise, you know, something interesting. So there, there are, so there's execution clients and then there's consensus Consensus.
1: clients,
2: you know, uh,
0: we won't get into the differences there, but you, you kind of run both. Basically, there's a lot more diversity on the consensus end than there is Mm -hmm. on the client end. And there's reasons for that, that go beyond the scope. Of this podcast, but um, you know, people kind of point at that at the client diversity that we have on the consensus side on Ethereum and say, "Hey, like, if they're able to do it over there, why can't we do it over here on this execution side with Besu and 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 Nethermind and and Geth?" So there is hope that that this might eventually get achieved, but development has just been a lot slower for whatever reason, and it's only gotten worse too. By the way, like Geth was, I think, like seventy five percent or or even less, you know, five or so months ago. It's something that people are going to be closely watching. Oh, one more thing, by the way, that Dan brought up that I should mention is he actually thinks that it does bear mentioning that most other blockchain ecosystems don't have this debate going on because they simply don't have the options for so many client softwares. Like, so Ethereum is held to kind of a higher standard. It has these options. And and one more thing that like I've just been thinking about is there's something called social consensus. If all the validators get screwed over because they're all using the same client and they all lose all of their staked Ethereum, one imagines that you'll see something like the DAO situation that we had in 2016, where there's a social consensus on like the human layer where people decide, hey, we're going to reboot the chain, fork it to something else. There's obviously going to be like probably a lot of strife and debate. You'd get a weird, you know, civil war sort of a situation on Ethereum, but something like that can happen. So you can see some of the people using the majority client as implicitly betting that the social consensus will kind of serve as a sort of safety net because so many people rely on it because we'd be so screwed if it went offline humans would you know step in and i guess pad pad the losses
2: just like people putting money in banks backed by the federal reserve i mean exactly. yeah <laughs> exactly the same that is fascinating sam that is fascinating but I mean, Margo, you know, to your Dankrad,
0: route. Yeah.
2: I mean, yeah, I mean, he's been talking about this for a while. He's, he's one of the major guys at Ethereum Foundation, right? He had a post. I saw a post by him about this in 2022.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of these folks have been talking about this for a while. I'm thinking about Micah Zoltu. He's not he's not a, a dev, but he's a big like Ethereum philosopher. He joins in on the meetings. So a lot of these folks, like internet personalities, a bunch of people who also were quoted in Sam's piece. I can't remember specifically, but feel feel free to chime in and give them credit where credit is due. But a lot of them have moved this conversation forward. And I think this is is their moment to make their point as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, the piece also brings up like a lot of the focus has not been on, I I guess, the broader validator community, but on specific validators. Because remember, Lido, Coinbase, Kraken make up the lion's share of validation of the stake on Ethereum. And so a lot of yeah. people who stake via Coinbase, for example, have gone to Coinbase and said, hey, unless you stop using just GEF, I'm going to move my money elsewhere. And Coinbase actually had to issue a statement, which I wasn't able to capture in my piece because it happened more recently, where they were like, hey, you know, we hear you and we are working to diversify. WIDO actually does diversify a little bit better. Yeah. So there's differences yeah. between all these validators. And that's been yeah, that's scoop, Sam. Ah, uh, the scoops happened. Um, they they <laughs> scooped us by by making the statement. Well, when they do something,
2: um, that, uh, you know we should probably wrap it up. But you know Ethereum's market cap two hundred seventy billion dollars. This is a very valuable thing that humans have created, and it's still in its adolescence, right? Well, I mean, with Lido, people talk about the centralization risk there. And now, you know, here's the people talking about the the lack of diversity in clients. And there's all these kind of like things that if you sort of home in on, they're kind of like red flags, but everybody sort of suspends judgment because it's new, like we're still making this thing, right? I don't know, Margaret, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think there's a, there's a lot of problems going on in, in Ethereum. And we talk about it a lot on here, right? Like whether it's yeah. about NFT, whether it's about centralization, infrastructure, centralization issues, layer 2 infrastructure, centralization issues. Like there's a whole lot of issues, but I think because the market cap is so big, those are highlighted more than in any other yeah. protocol. And also yeah. just like the ethos of a lot of the people who um, are building this blockchain really want to like part of that is that they really want to be held accountable so that it is this decentralized fair incredibly neutral platform for most people so if it's not about client diversity we'll be talking about MEV some other week or we'll be talking about centralization yeah. yeah. there'll always be something right now it's it's the focus is client diversity yeah so. yeah fascinating
2: yeah. all right that was a great discussion. Probably longer than you would have liked, Michelle Musso, our producer, who's listening. <laughs> but uh, anyway, thank you both for this great discussion. And that is it for this week. Thank you for listening to the Protocol Podcast. If you have any questions, about any stories or comments, please, or news tips, scoops. We want scoops. Or Margot wants um, the scoop. An invite to Vitalia. <laughs> <laughs> um, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com subject line the protocol you can also listen to us weekly on coindesk podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts also please subscribe we said this but you can't say it enough please subscribe to the newsletter the protocol on coindesk.com see you next
1: week